0: Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. For more than 30 years, the 340B Drug Pricing Program has offered deep discounts on drugs purchased by providers that meet certain criteria tied in part to serving uninsured or low-income patients. The program has expanded dramatically from its humble origins and is the focal point of significant controversy regarding how effectively it achieves its objectives of ensuring access to drugs for low-income populations and supporting the institutions that serve them. One question about the 340B program is if by providing discounts for certain drugs, it alters the prescribing patterns of participants. In today's episode of A Health policy, we focus on one aspect of this question. Does the 340B program deter hospitals from using cheaper biosimilars rather than more expensive biologics? I'm here with Amelia Bond, assistant professor of health policy and economics in the Department of Population Health Sciences at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Bond and co-authors published a paper in the May 2023 issue of Health Affairs exploring whether participation in the 340B drug program influences biosimilar uptake. They found that in hospital outpatient settings, 340B program eligibility is associated with a lower use of biosimilars and more hospital-based administrations of and revenues from biologics. We'll discuss these findings and their implications in today's episode. Dr. Bond, welcome to the program.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, This is a really interesting and somewhat uh, disturbing paper, I have to say. (laughs) We're going to get into it here. Now, there are two concepts that I think our listeners have to have at least a basic understanding of in order for the paper to make sense. Uh, Let's start with what are biologics and what are biosimilars and how should people think about what those are and why it's important to study them.
1: I think it's first helpful to to talk about actually small molecules first in the small molecule market. So a a small molecule uh, is one where the active ingredients is what it sounds like, a small molecule. It's typically a pill or a tablet and things you can pick up over the counter or get a script uh, from your clinician and, and pick up from a local pharmacy. Biologics, on the other hand, are more complex and and large molecules. They're typically an injection or an infusion. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes you're going to go to a physician's office or an outpatient department and have a clinician administer them. As the name implies, these medications are made from biologic material, so things like nucleic acids, amino acids, and proteins, and typically biologics are used to treat severe diseases where just small molecule drugs don't exist. And some examples that, that you and I are probably very familiar with and listeners are very familiar with are, are things like vaccines, monoclonal antibodies, and gene therapies. Um, as I mentioned before, since these are often administered by a clinician uh, in the Medicare setting, these are then going to be uh, paid for via Part B. Now, why me as a health policy researcher and health economist I'm interested in biologics, again, for two reasons. One, biologic medicines are very expensive. So in 2019, biologics accounted for about of administrations. So overall, there are not a lot of them administered, but they accounted for over 40% of spending. So one, biologics are very expensive. And the second reason, very interested in them, is that they are kind of the main reason for spending increases uh, in U.S. drug spending in recent years. So based on our calculation, using IQVIA data around 83% 83% of drug spending growth was due to biologics between 2015 and 2019. So kind of the high spending, high prices, this is where the concept of biosimilars comes to play, which you can think of as kind of this lower cost alternative to a biologic. But before I kind of define that a little more precisely, I thought it might be helpful to go back to that small molecule parallel um, and again, as, as many listeners likely know, when a drug comes kind of first to market, uh, this branded uh, small molecule medication, or in the biologic setting, the originator biologic, they're going to come to market and have patent protection. And so the FDA is giving these pharmaceutical companies patent protections so that you know, the, the first number of years on the market, the pharmace- pharmaceutical company can set whatever price they want or the market can bear. And the idea here is we need to provide some incentive for that pharmaceutical firm to make these large investments in uh, research and development and recoup that kind of large expense of developing that medication. So now in that small molecule market, once the patent is up, we have these generic drugs that will generally enter the market pretty quickly. Market shares are going to increase and that price drops pretty precipitously quickly. And so a parallel in the biologic market, we have these biosimilars. And I wanted to kind of use a quote from the actual piece of legislation, I believe, that that defined them. So biosimilar is defined as, quote, a biological product that is highly similar to and has no clinically meaningful differences from an existing FDA-approved reference product. And to date, when the, the originator biologic patents are up. Some biosimilars have entered, but we haven't seen across the board these kind of large market share increases and deep price drops that we might have expected. And in particular, the first few biosimilars that entered, we didn't see that as much. And to date, there's been a little bit of heterogeneity. And so that leads me to asking, why have we seen this? What what might account for the lack of deep price declines and market share increases to date?
0: Okay, so we have uh, biologics which account for, as you said, 40% of drug spending, a vast majority of spending growth. We'd like to see biosimilar adoption at lower prices to drive prices down, just as we see in the small molecule market. And in comes the 340B program, which is at least as complicated as drug discovery, and we're not going to do it justice here on this podcast. But fundamentally, the 340B program enables certain entities to purchase drugs at a lower price. Can you just say a little bit about uh, how hospitals are affected by that program when it comes to biologics and biosimilars?
1: I think it's helpful to start uh, with understanding the 340B program's original kind of intent uh, so that 340B program started in the early 1990s, uh, and its goal was was a good one, is a good one. It's really to, to support a public good. So it's supporting hospitals that see a large portion of low-income individuals, those typically with Medicaid or, or no insurance at all. Uh, and again, I'm going to quote here. I, I think this is the original legislation that, that put this into to, um, being. It's quote, the purpose is to stretch federal resources as far as possible, reaching more eligible patients and providing more comprehensive services. And uh, the issue that a lot of policy researchers have identified to date is that just the targeting of this program was poor. And I'll, I'll speak a little bit about that Uh in a couple moments. So the the 340B program, it enables participants to receive discounts from manufacturers on almost all drugs administered in the outpatient setting. Now, most of these drugs are biologics, so this is why biologics come into play. These discounts, they must be at least 22% off. Uh, A GAO report that is now a little dated found that these discounts can be much higher, as much as 50% off. Uh, importantly, and this gets to a little bit of the targeting, these hospitals receive this discount no matter who receives that drug. So whether a Medicaid or uninsured individual receives that drug, which is the original intent of this program, that discount is had, uh, but that discount is also had if that is administered to a commercial patient where the reimbursement might be much, much higher. Now, in the Medicare setting, uh, reimbursement is not affected in any way. So the the 340B participating hospitals receive this discount, but they're going to receive the exact same reimbursement as a non-340B hospital. And I'm going to get a tiny bit in the weeds here, but the the reimbursement, and I'll talk about this a few times, reimbursement is the average sales price, or ASP, plus 6%. Uh, And the you can think of the average sales price as kind of for the average hospital, you're gonna be paying at cost, the cost of purchasing that medication. And then that hospital is gonna receive this kind of 6% profit, 6% kind of revenue for administering that medication. And we did um, some calculations in the paper to, to work this out for one particular uh, biologic, which was infliximab. This is uh, a medication used generally in the long term, to treat chronic conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease. We backed out an estimate that a hospital would be in re- would be reimbursed for a one-year supply of administering this to one person, around $24,000. And to give you a sense, the, that kind of 6% kind of quote-unquote revenue for a non-340B hospital is going to be around $1,400. So that's the Revenue a non-40b hospital receives for a 340b hospital who receives a discount. Here we're we're going to estimate somewhere in the middle around a one-third discount. That revenue is going to be eight times larger, so around nine thousand dollars. So importantly, here the pairing the discount with the kind of equal reimbursement leads to a much more kind of profit when administering these medications and the. So, one final thing I'll, I'll mention here is that there's no requ- or there's little requirement in how those surplus of funds is used. So, again, that gets to perhaps the lack of targeting of this program.
0: So, the key issue that uh, you get into in this paper is the question of whether the 340B program affects hospital choices and uh, to understand how that can play out, you have to understand that it's possible actually to sort of flip the profitability for the hospital to where it's more profitable to prescribe and use the more expensive drug. So I'm going to ask you if you can explain how it's possible that a more expensive drug actually leads to uh, the hospital making more money. The key here
1: is the margin or the spread. And here defining that as the difference between what Medicare reimburses or what Medicare pays the hospital uh, minus the cost of actually acquiring that medication. And so as I mentioned before, the payment is this average sales price or ASP plus 6% of the originator ASP. What I didn't uh, specify is that the biosimilar also receives that same 6%. So the, the ASP will, again, mimic the the cost of whether that is a biologic or a biosimilar, but that 6% is always going to be 6% of the originator ASP. <laughs> when we come to the 340B and the discounts, the, the key here is that the discount, uh, if it is larger in absolute terms, so even if that percentage discount is the same, if the discount is larger in absolute terms, then that will lead to the hospital making more money when administering that originally higher-priced medication. And again, in the, the paper we, we run through an example with infliximab, and I won't go through the numbers as precisely this time, but here we can get to a point where it actually, a hospital can receive over $500 more for administering this originator um, instead of the lower, originally lower-priced biosimilar. and. Want to make kind of two notes here, which is on one hand, this actually isn't a huge difference, $500. So you can think of a hospital and, and how uh, large they are. However, maybe it can become a little bigger when you think of sizable patient populations and maybe ones that use a lot of biologics. Uh, the second piece though is that we're asking hospitals to um, engage kind of in this fixed cost to stock another drug, change their order entry, all for a less profitable medication.
0: So what we're finding here is that due to the structure of the 340B discounts and the pricing and rebate structure associated with biologics and biosimilars, that it's possible for the margin to be greater for the more expensive drug. And even though maybe not by a lot, if the whole concept of the biosimilar, like with generics, is to sort of disrupt the patterns of use and of the more expensive drug, this is not a scenario where you're getting the kind of disruption that we see in the small molecule side. And this then leads to finding out what actually happened in terms of prescription uh, use and and, uh, administration of these drugs. Uh, We'll talk about your findings after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Amelia Bond about financial incentives in the 340B program as the, they relate to biologics and biosimilars. So, before the break, we talked a lot about how the program is structured and the somewhat odd financial incentives that could arise for a hospital. Let's go straight to the findings. You looked at two high volume biologics administered in an outpatient setting. Uh, What did you find about levels of use of these drugs uh, in 340B-participating hospitals compared to non-340B hospitals?
1: We focused on, uh, as you mentioned, these two originator biologics that experienced the first biosimilar launches. in the. US uh, we talked a little bit about filigrastin before and that the second one was filigrastin which is generally used short-term medication used to treat uh, adverse effects of chemotherapy and what we found looking at these two medications was was pretty sizable we found that the 340B program was associated with a 22.9 percentage point reduction in biosimilar use. So for hospitals who kind of just missed the cutoff and were not eligible to participate in 340B, they administered a biosimilar about one third of the time. Whereas hospitals that you know, were just above and able to participate in 340B, they instead administered a biosimilar closer to 12% of the time. So this represents a 66% decline in biosimilar use associated with the 340B program. We, in addition to to thinking about biosimilar use, we also looked at potentially the incentive to administer more medications overall. Uh, As I mentioned before, the 340B hospitals, their profit was about eightfold higher than a non-340B hospital. So you, we might think 340B hospitals might be incentivized to administer more things, and this follows previous work by by a number of of colleagues. We found here similar similar effects. So 340B program was associated with 13.3 more biologics administered annually. This represents about a 77 percent increase on. The face value 13.3 doesn't sound like a lot, but recall these biologics are very expensive, uh, and these 340B hospitals are more likely to use this more expensive biologic rather than biosimilar. So we also found that the 340B program was associated with around 18,000 more biologic revenue per hospital, and again, a, a 77% increase. So these are pretty uh, sizable effects we've had.
0: Now, there's nothing in this uh, conversation that takes away from the possible positive effects of the 340B program. I want to be clear, you didn't do a top-to-bottom assessment of whether or not it achieves its objectives. But this does suggest a pretty uh, sizable response to the financial incentives associated with the program. You've been, I think, fairly direct about those, and you mentioned the targeting problem. Uh, So maybe if you could just say a little bit more, what it do these findings tell you about how hospitals respond to these financial incentives and why uh, that might give us some pause about the current design of the 340B program?
1: We might step back and talk a little bit of just about the financial incentives in this setting, uh, which there's been quite a bit of research that that has shown in many other settings that that providers are can be responsive to financial incentives. And here, again, we see, evidence that you know the profitability of a service, or in this case, medication, can impact a provider's decision on what to do or hear what to prescribe. I think it's important to remember in this setting, we think that these biologic and biosimilar are clinically similar. Uh, however, we're in a, a setting where we're incentivizing hospitals to make more money. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's at the cost of Medicare, um, higher Medicare spending, and most importantly, a larger out-of-pocket cost with consumers through co-insurance. And so we see actually a little outside of the 340B program, if if we think that financial incentives can influence whether or not someone uses a biosimilar, then this could be relevant actually to the, more broadly the Part B payment schedule, where, as I mentioned before, reimbursement is this ASP plus 6%. Uh, for biosimilars, it's this ASP plus 6% of the originator. Uh, Importantly, there's no kind of disincentive to administer biosimilars, but this also means there's no incentive to do so. Uh, And this is actually unlike the small molecule market where uh, providers are actually financially incentivized to prescribe the lowest cost alternative. Um, So right now this does not exist in Part B. And something we talk about in the paper a little bit is uh, we think this work uh, can support proposals to reform this Part B pharmaceutical reimbursement. And and in particular, we highlight a recommendation by MedPAC uh, that talks about perhaps the consolidation of originator biologic and all biosimilars to be reimbursed at the same rate. And in doing so, this would then incentivize providers to administer the lowest cost medication.
0: Maybe as we come to a close, uh, you've raised some real concerns about the structure of the program, the targeting, but also the implications. Of that, uh, with respect to levels of administration and uptake of biosimilars. So, um, given this is an area you focus on, what suggestions you, would you make with respect to how the 340B program might change to address these problems?
1: We think that the kind of intent of the 340B program is good. Um, we're just concerned that perhaps the the targeting uh, is poor, uh, and. Again, want to want to emphasize in this particular setting, we think that clinical effectiveness is similar. It's really about there are these incentives where hospitals are making more money, perhaps to the detriment of of Medicare spending and consumer out of pocket cost. And so, when I think about kind of reforms to the 340B program, I think about kind of three different mechanisms to perhaps do better with targeting. And one is perhaps the targeting of hospitals. So first, the 340B program covers almost one-third of hospitals, so that's a lot. Uh, Perhaps we want to focus this program on more safety net-oriented hospitals, and I should say that safety net-oriented hospitals, it's not a well-defined concept, Um, so this is something that that a number of researchers are thinking about, including uh, a colleague here at Weil, Will Shapiro. One reform potentially targeting, better targeting of hospitals. Second is perhaps targeting of patients. Uh, So right now, the program allows discounted medications to be used for all patients, whether they are Medicaid, uninsured, or commercial Medicare patients. Uh, Here, maybe we target the patients so that only Medicaid or uninsured individuals could receive these discounts. I hesitate here a little bit, however, is because this could be a little difficult to implement um, and also monitor. When, when hospitals procure these medications, it's often kind of in big batches. So uh, identifying which medications administered to whom might be uh, difficult. And the, the final kind of potential targeting, and this is something that's been part of uh, proposed legislation in the past, is perhaps enhancing uh, the requirements for community benefits. And pairing this with monitoring and enforcement. So right now, there's been a lot of good work, also by uh, co-authors Sunita Desai, as well as a group in led by SIA Nick Pay, Minnesota, that really shows that 340B hospitals don't seem to be providing any more community benefits relative to their non-340B counterparts. Um, so in this proposal it would be, why don't we make this requirement to, to offer more community benefits? Kind of a higher requirement, and also pair that with, with some monitoring.
0: Well, uh, I appreciate you shedding a light on this complicated issue. Uh, I know the feelings among the hospitals are very defensive about the program. Um, and the question really is, as you say, for an admirable goal, how do we use our resources in the most efficient and effective way to achieve that goal? Your work uh, helps us understand uh, where the program is and maybe isn't uh, hitting the mark. And for that, uh, I am confident it will get significant attention, and I'm sure it will be criticized by those who don't like the results. Um, For now, though, I'm really pleased to be able to add this to the growing body of literature on the topic to help guide policy. And today, I thank you for being my guest on Health Policy. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy.